We are in a series through the book, letter, sermon. Um, We don't know what to call it. It's a book in the Bible, but it's actually like a letter, but it's not like a letter. It's like a sermon. So, oh, if you need a Bible, please raise your hand. One will get, uh, one of the uh, the greeters, ushers will get one to you. We're in in a series in the book, letter, sermon of one John called Becoming Like Jesus. And this sermon is entitled, um, A Triad of Christ-Likeness. It's part one to this. Um, Turn to chapter 2, verses 3, and I'll read down through verse 11, and then I'll pray. 1 John 2, 3. We know that we have come to know him, speaking of Jesus. We know that we have come to know Jesus if we keep his commands. Whoever says, oh, I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard, yet I am writing to you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother or sister is still in darkness. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. This is our text or section this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would open up our, our minds and our hearts, that you would um, speak to us today the, the thing that you want to teach this church. I pray that we would learn today, that we would, our, our, our mental capacities and our emotional capacities and all of those things would be peaked, but Lord, that we would be taught today the way of Jesus. I pray that we would know and learn and leave this place changed because of the power of your spirit. And I pray for anointing and your words and your help now. Please, God, help as I try um, with everything that I can bring today to communicate the scriptures. Um, Fill in where I cannot do the things I cannot do. I can speak to ears, only you can change hearts. God, do that together um, as we submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. One month after I graduated uh, high school at the age of 17, I was a youth camp counselor for, a junior, for my, uh, the junior high group at my church. And uh, we went to this camp called Hume Lake. Um, yeah, you've probably been there. Located in the Sequoia National Forest. Um, and a few significant things happened at this camp for me. Um, it was there that I believed I was called into ministry and really fell in love with the pastoral side of ministry. Living with a bunch of junior hires for a week in high altitude and little to no showers will do one of two things. <laughs> It will make you never want to do ministry again, or it will make you want to do it for the rest of your life. And the the latter happened with me. I fell in love with it. I remember one night, it was the come to Jesus night. They have it every night at the camp. It's like the last night before camp and there's extended music and worship and prayer teams and all this stuff. And I'm praying for kids. And I remember um, being called and Jesus saying, this is what I want you to do. Like this, this is what I'm calling you into. And I also remember that the speaker that week was a rather funny and engaging speaker named Francis Chan. And who some 20 years later, I would become a great friend of mine. I didn't even meet him at this camp. He was just the speaker. And 20 years later would become a dear, great friend of mine and very important person in my life as I've been in ministry. 
And I remember the theme verse for that camp because it was the first Bible verse I've ever memorized. And it was 1 John 2.6. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. That was the memory verse. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. I love the rhythm of that verse. It flows so well. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. I love the urgency of that verse. If you claim to live in him, you must live as Jesus did. You must. It placed on you, the reader, the urgency and the responsibility that if you claim to follow Christ, you must live like Christ. I love the near cynicism of this verse that challenges you. It's almost as if John's saying, I kind of read a little in the middle of it, like the beginning of it. If you claim to live in him. I see three A's, claim, like if you claim to live in him, you've got to live like him. You see almost cynicism in John's voice here. If you, are you claiming to live in Jesus? Then you have to live like Jesus. It's almost cynical in its approach, like John gets a bit crunchy here. I love the clarity of that verse that made following Jesus very simple to define. If you claim to be a Christian... You must live like Christ. And there it is. The best way to define Christianity. To be like Jesus. However, it has become generally accepted in church circles that becoming a Christian has nothing essentially to do with actually being like Jesus. People think that in church. They think, well, going to church means you you love Jesus. Going to church means you believe things about Jesus. But actually being like Jesus. No, that's not really what Christianity is about. Like people think that. There might be people in this room that think, well, being like Jesus isn't really part of the gig. But John won't allow us to define being a Christian in any other way. If you claim to be in Christ, if you claim to be a Christian, you must live like Christ. But we should ask ourselves, what does it mean to be like Christ? I mean, if we were brought to trial in a court of law and accused of being Christian, what characteristics would have to exhibit, would there have to be for us to exhibit for there to be enough evidence to convict us? Which is an important question because there might be a lot of confusion about what lies at the center of the practice of Christian faith. What is demanded and what is negotiable? What is essential and what is optional? In our text today, John makes it clear what he means about Christ-likeness with a triad that he will amplify over and over and over again in the rest of his sermon letter. See, the method in which John writes this sermon letter, commentators call amplification. So the method of John's writing style in 1 John is amplification, which which means he doesn't write linearly. He doesn't have a three-point theological, logical sermon. That's why this book is really easy to read and really hard to follow. Because what John does is he names, he mentions a few themes and then he comes back to them in different ways over and over and over again, amplifying his point louder and louder and louder. And so if I taught on love right here, he hits love over and over and over again and he says it in different ways and he says it louder and louder and louder. That's why it's called amplification. And what John brings up in our text, he will amplify for the remainder of this book. And I want to call, I I want to call it the triad of Christ-likeness. This is what John mentions here that he amplifies throughout the book. This triad of Christ-likeness. And it is this. Knowing Jesus, obeying Jesus, and loving like Jesus. 
knowing Jesus, obeying Jesus, loving like Jesus. Now these are tightly wound together and they're hard to separate for John because he plays one off the other in defining them. So for John, knowing Jesus is obeying Jesus. And obeying Jesus is loving Jesus. And loving Jesus is obeying Jesus. And obeying Jesus is truly knowing Jesus. He makes them all one. He, he plays them against each other. And this is why John says in verses 3 through 5, We know that we have come to know Jesus if we obey. If we keep his commands. Now, when John says commands, what does he mean? What he will go on to mean is love. The command that John is um, extrapolating in 1 John is the command that Jesus left him and the other disciples on the night he was betrayed. He said, a new commandment I give you, love each other as I have loved, I, I have loved you. And John will say in this book, that command we must keep. We must keep love for God and love for each other. We must love. That's the command. So he says this, we know that we have come to know Jesus if we obey the command of love. Whoever says, I know him, but does not obey the command of love is a liar. But if anyone who obeys the command of love, love for God is made complete in them. This is why for John, these things are interconnected and they're interconnected concepts and realities and they're really hard to separate. But let's try, let's try to separate them, knowing, obeying, and loving and see what we learn. First, let's talk about what it means to know about, what it, what it means to know Jesus. What does it mean to know Jesus? Knowing Jesus can be said in many different ways. It can be said that knowing Jesus means to have a relationship with Jesus. This is knowing Jesus versus knowing about Jesus. If you know about someone, um, knowing about is like admirers. You could, someone can admire you or you can admire someone and you just know about them. You can also, uh, can also take the form of a stalker. Like you guys know what that's about, right? Like Facebook stalking. I don't know, I don't know them, but I Facebook stalk them. I know all about them, okay? You guys know all about that. There is a knowing about Jesus. You know the stuff about Jesus. You might have even responded to stuff, information about Jesus. Jesus said, if you believe in him, you'll go to heaven. Okay, I want that. You, you know about him, but knowing him is something different. Knowing him is having a relationship with him. And having a relationship with Jesus starts with what in many uh, church circles people have called having a personal relationship with Jesus. Or said differently, you know Jesus as your personal savior and Lord. In the past, I have not liked this saying one bit. Because he's not your little personal pocket savior, right? He's not like my savior, Jesus, my buddy, Jesus. He goes in my pocket, my little personal savior, Jesus. I do not believe that about Christ at all. I believe that Christ is the savior and he is the Lord, okay? Not your little one. He is the savior and he's the Lord of heaven and earth. But I will admit, and here I am, I will admit that that phrase is helpful in a couple of ways. And here's how. The qualification that we make of Jesus being our personal savior means that Jesus isn't just your family's faith. Or he's, he doesn't, he, you don't simply have the faith of your parents or the faith of your nation or the faith of the part of the nation that you grew up in. Texas or whatever, right? Like if you grew up, they're like, well, yeah, Jesus. 
We're Texan. This is what we do, right? Or the South, or the Bible Belt. San Francisco, not so much, right? A whole different religion. If you grew up in San Francisco, you have a whole different religion. You believe in a, a whole different God than this. How do you know that your, this Jesus is your Per, like not just your family's faith or your nation's faith, the fact that you grew up in America or the fact that you grew up in the South or Texas or whatever or the Bible Belt. How do you know that it's your faith? And this is why the word evangelical has caused so much damage and confusion the last several years. The term evangelical has been on our news cycles the last couple of years and it's used in such horrible ways. People will say, yes, I am an evangelical because of the way that I vote. And then what they mean by that is that, well, I I, I'm evangelical because I go to church. Or I, I'm evangelical because if I did go to church, I would go to a Christian church. If I did, I would go to a Christian church. Or because I live in the Bible Belt. Or because my family is evangelical and I'm not going to deny my family's religion. It's my family's religion. Or if I really followed a religion, I think it would be the Christian religion. Or if I want to go to heaven, I think it would be the Christian version of heaven. This is what many people mean by evangelical. And the data on this is startling. People who say they are evangelical, they say they are evangelical Christians and how they live or what they believe about the world or what they believe about what Jesus has taught us to live in the world is startling. It's almost as if some of them have never read the teachings of Jesus. So for this reason, I like the qualifier personal Savior and Lord because it denotes, and I might be giving too much credit here, but giving away too much credit, but I think personal Savior and Lord denotes that the individual person has wrestled with the life and the teachings of Jesus and the meaning of his death on the cross and the implications of the resurrection and has said, yes, I believe that and I will make Jesus my savior and my Lord. And I will make this faith my own faith by choosing to follow Jesus into the waters of baptism myself. I think that's what it means. I might be giving away too much credit. But I, I think that qualifier of Jesus, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. I think that qualifier is helpful there. I have wrestled with the life and the teachings of Jesus. And I've wrestled with, with the meaning of his death and the implications of his resurrections. And I'm in on that. I'm in on that. And I'm following that. And he is my Lord and he is my Savior. He saved me from my sins, but he's also my Lord. He tells me what to do. He tells me how to live. He showed me how to live. He showed me the way and I will walk in it. He is my Lord and my God. Knowing Jesus is having a personal relationship with Jesus like that. And you get to know Jesus like you would get to know any other person. And, the, and, and that's, I think we, we know enough about people to know that you get to know somebody by spending time with them. You get to know someone by learning their voice by learning their teachings. This is, this is or, or the way of life. This is the same way you learn about Jesus. How do you learn Jesus? Well, here, here it is. Spend time with Jesus. Learn Jesus' voice. Learn Jesus' teachings. Learn his sense of humor. Learn his anger. If you don't read the teachings of Jesus and laugh, you, you don't get them yet. Keep reading. Keep reading. Read and you will start chuckling. You're like, he's funny. He's really, really funny. And then the parts that get him angry will start to make you feel uncomfortable. Like, wow, he's really angry about that. Why aren't I angry about those things? 
This is, this is how you develop a relationship with Jesus. This is like a, this might be early on in your walk. This might be like, I would say where I'm at even today, 20 years plus years into following Christ. The same thing I do to continue to get to know Jesus. And the way you do this, if you're curious, is by studying the life of Christ as told to us in the Gospels. Start to read like the book of Mark, my favorite book, or book of John. Or if you want the, the full version, Matthew, really long, but the full version, Matthew. Um, if you want the, the version where Jesus is um, um, eating a lot and then also spending time with the poor, Luke. That's, that's the book. All of these teach us the teachings and the life of Jesus. Spend time in them. Meditate on Jesus' life and his teachings and then take them in and think about them and creatively start to live by them. This is how you get to know Jesus. And then another way you, the way you get to know Jesus is that you start to make Jesus' practices your practices. His way of life, your way of life. This is the best way to get to know someone. This is why when you travel with someone, it's the best way to get to know them. Because you start living in life rhythm together. You start, you start living together. And when you start to practice the way of Jesus, like what are the things Jesus did? I'm going to start living my life around those things. Dallas Willard in his masterful book, Spirit of the Disciplines, says this is, these are the practices of Jesus. Here they are. And he goes, these practices all flow into the action of Jesus. So all the things that Jesus did, all his actions, flowed from his practices. And they are these. He, he writes that they are these. The practices of Jesus are solitude and silence. Jesus is always peeling away to be quiet and be alone. He is always sneaking away. Not because he was an introvert. He's like, oh my gosh, people, I can't. That's not why. He was there to be alone with himself, to be alone with his father, to sit, to contemplate, to whatever the things that, I mean, all kinds of stuff with solitude. The second thing is prayer. Jesus wasn't alone to play games on his iPhone or check Twitter. Like he peeled away to pray. He peeled away for intimacy and connection with the father. The third practice of Jesus was simple and sacrificial living. Simple and sacrificial living. Jesus lived a simple life. A simple life. If Jesus lived today, he would live a simple life. And the reason why Jesus lived a simple life is not to be distracted from the main thing in life. The stuff of our lives, the things that, that, that clutter our phones and our closets and our bedrooms and our, and, our, and our calendars, these things distract us from the main thing in life. Jesus lived a very simple and very sacrificial life so his life can be spent on the main thing, obedience to the Father. He had one objective, obedience to the Father. What's the way that he kept the main thing the main thing? Simple and sacrificial living. The other thing that marked his life was, uh, his practice, was an intense study and meditation on God's word and God's ways. Jesus was so immersed in the story world of God through the scriptures that when he talked, when he walked through his own world, he knew how to speak into it prophetically. He, I mean, he'd saturated his mind on like God's word and the ways of God. And he would walk this earth and speak prophetically. And so he would know what justice truly meant because he spent time thinking about what is the justice of God? What is the, what is the justice of God? What is the mercy of God? 
And how do I bring that to bear on my society? And he would live this way. This just didn't happen because he read a thing on justice because he spent time meditating on what God taught about justice. We'll get into more of that in the weeks to come. Service to others was a practice of Jesus, especially the poor and marginalized. He spent time with the poor. He spent time with the marginalized. This was a practice of Jesus. Now, all of these practices, uh, silence and solitude, prayer, simple sacrificial living, intense study of God's word and his ways and service to others, these things, all of these practices, from that flowed all the actions of Jesus. So all the things that Jesus did flowed from these practices. You and I, in some way in our life, when we get to know Jesus, must start to live like Jesus. Like Jesus, like, like this. Like, I'm not going to live like Jesus in the sense that when I'm called to be on the spot like Jesus, I will have practiced the way of Jesus enough to where when, I'm on the, when I need to be on the spot like Jesus, I, I have a wealth of resource of like living my life with Jesus and like Jesus so I can react like Jesus. So I need, I need solitude and silence and prayer and to live more simply. And I need meditation on the scriptures and I need my life to be oriented towards a service towards the uh toward the poor and the marginalized in my city like this stuff orients us to become like Jesus and these from these practices will flow the life of Jesus through you so knowing Jesus has to do with with knowing Jesus personally knowing Jesus has to do with with practicing the way of Jesus but knowing Jesus also means intimacy with Jesus this is that mystical, beautiful thing that happens in private prayer or worship or at a church or in a spiritual conversation with someone when Jesus feels really close. Like so close to you, it's almost, it is intimate. I know this happens every Sunday in this room to different people. I hear it every week. I hear it from new people in our church community or people who have been here a while, but it suddenly happens to them. And it's hard to explain, but it's profound. And it's like God has, is near. That's the way. That's, that's, the, oh, that's the thing. Like, what was it? He goes, well, I felt like God was really near me. And it's almost like being united with God. Like the feeling of being united with God. It's like true love has reached out and touched you some, somehow. And it's like the thing you've been looking for and longing for and looking for in your work or in your relationships or in your fantasies or in your travels has broke through for a moment and warmed you. It's warmed you. And some people cry when this happens. Some people just weep. Like they feel like, I feel like God's near me. I feel strangely warmed by his presence. Like he's right here. And then no one can convince me otherwise. And they start to cry. Some sit there silent, just dumbfounded, like, I can't believe this is happening. Some people get so inspired, they know exactly why they're here on this earth and what to do next. Like you visionary types, like, I know exactly why I'm here. I know exactly what to do next. God has touched, God has strangely warmed my heart. I know exactly what to do. This is, this is more of me, by the way. Like when God comes near me, I'm like, I know what to do. Like I immediately know what to do. Some people... Um, some people just want to bow before God in humility. They, like, wherever you are in the room, sometimes they just creep forward and kneel. Like, I just feel the presence of God right now, and I want to kneel. What, no matter what, what response you have, at the core of it is always gratitude. Thank you, God, for drawing near to me. Thank you 
that you are near. Thank you. And so knowing Jesus intimately comes with all of the feels, all of them. There are a ton of feeling and emotion tied to knowing Jesus. A ton of it. Some of you guys know this really well. Like there's a lot of emotion. There's a feeling when you're close to Christ, when you know Jesus, there is a feeling of closeness to Jesus. Like really close. You feel really close to God. There is a feeling of confidence by being led by Jesus to what's next. So when you make, when you have big decisions to make, you know that, that God is speaking to you and you have confidence in what you're supposed to do next. Some of you, there's a feeling of joy that comes from being in the will of Jesus. You are in the center of the will of Christ and there is a tremendous joy that happens there. But here's the challenge. Here's the challenge of knowing Jesus. Now there are, following Jesus comes with all sorts of challenges. Knowing Jesus comes with all sorts of challenges. But I want to, to touch on one in particular. And the challenge is this. Can you continue to follow Jesus and trust Jesus when all the feels are gone? When you don't feel God anymore? When the band strikes up and those feelings are gone? When you wake up in the morning and you are practicing prayer and they're gone? You're, and, you're, and the feelings that surround following Jesus are gone and you feel alone? And you feel afraid and you feel dull and you feel uninspired and you feel unheard by God. And you're doing all the same things that you were doing before. You're practicing what Jesus practiced. You're in prayer. You're in silence. You're spending time with the poor. You're going to CG to stay connected in community. You're doing all of it, but you don't feel God anymore. You don't feel you're given direction by God. You don't feel those feelings when your favorite worship song comes on. You don't feel the same way when you wake up early with a cup of coffee to spend time with God. All of the feelings are gone. And some of us, at the, what we do at this point is we try to switch routines. If we prayed in the morning, we'll try praying in the evening. If we went to CG, we'll stop going to CG for a season. If we went to one church, we'll try another church. If we did our devotionals with a physical Bible, we'll try it on our iPhone. And we think movement is the answer. We think change is the answer. If we keep moving, things will get fresh and it will help to make things better. After my sabbatical this last summer, I felt so connected to Jesus. It was ecstasy. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I actually, I, and not, not, this is not an exaggeration. I told this to several people. I actually loved going to bed at night so I could wake up and be with God. I'm not joking. I was like, what time is it? Nine? Oh, almost, almost time for bed. I cannot wait to go to bed. And I'd go to bed and I'd wake up early and I would make coffee and I would spend like a couple hours in prayer and they felt like 20 minutes. I left the house to start work and almost nothing phased me. Nothing. Not even Uber driver stopping in the weirdest places on my way to work. Nothing phased me. God bless you, Uber driver. God bless you. I was floating. I was literally floating with my life with God. I'm like, this is, and I thought to myself, is this what the new normal is like with God? Like, I might be traversing into sainthood right now. I am so <laughs> close. Like, I felt so connected. And then I had a phone conversation with a mentor of mine. And he asked me how it was going a few weeks back from sabbatical. And I told him how connected to God I felt. It's like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. I told him everything I just told you. And he was excited with me. He, he said, enjoy it, Dave. Enjoy it. Learn new rhythms with God. 
And then there's this long pause. And he said, and it sounds like you are in a honeymoon phase. And this is like where the record scratching, you know, I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, you might be in a honeymoon phase, a honeymoon season. I'm like, what are you saying to me? What do you mean? Honeymoon season. He says, he said, I'm like, I've been walking with Jesus a long time. We've been together for a long time. This is not a honeymoon season. He said, this might last a long time. It might last forever, but it may not. It may become more effortful to pray. And God may feel more distant when you pray. If that happens, if that day comes, Dave, it isn't because you did anything wrong. But there are always seasons of, and he's called, he said, consolation and desolation in our relationship with God. I'm like, say more. He said, there are seasons of consolation where we feel so close to God, where sin doesn't look at tempting at all. Prayer and studying the Bible is easy and you look forward to it. But then there are seasons of desolation where it's all the opposite. God seems far away. Sin seems so appealing. Prayer is a work and the Bible gives you more questions than it does answers. He said, if you come upon this time, it's good to ask yourself two questions. One, have I gotten lazy? And two, have I sinned and need to repent? To just ask those preliminarily. Ask those questions. He goes, but, but, often what's really going on is that the training wheels are off and things get wobbly and you might fall. It's not because you've gotten worse. It's because growth needs to take place now. He said, you are being sustained by what is called emotional grace. And a shift may happen, not because you don't know God or you're not trying to know God, but because the character of following God isn't fully there yet. And you may not know this, but you are in a sense reliant on all the feels that God is giving you right now. And that's okay for a season. But there is a deeper invitation a greater challenge that awaits on the other side of that. So again, there was a pause. And I said, okay, thanks for that. That's really helpful. Um, how, how about I call you if this feeling goes away? He's like, great. So I email him two weeks later. The honeymoon is over. Like, it's completely <laughs> over. It's gone. Like, it's all work again. It's so hard. And I don't feel like God's there. And it feels like everything is, everything is out of order. Everything that could go wrong is going wrong. And he was right. As I reflect back on following Jesus over 20 years now, I didn't really have language to it. But this has happened to me in lesser ways in my entire Christian life. Seasons of consolation and seasons of desolation. Always leading me deeper in my relationship with God. Spiritual mystics call this season, ready for this, the dark night of the senses. That sounds awesome and ominous at the same time. <laughs> the dark night of the senses. And this is what it is. It's when the dependencies on intellectual and emotional feedback are painfully surrendered. One spiritual writer says it like this. We depend on cognitive assent and affective assurances to substantiate the reality of our relationship with God. If we can't know or feel God, we customarily doubt our relationship with God. But such knowing and feeling restrict God to the narrow limits of our minds and senses and reduce our relationship with God to the maintenance of such feedback. The dark night of the senses begins to move us beyond such dependency to an unconditioned relationship with God. Whew. 
That is not for the faint of heart. What this writer is saying, he's saying, we depend on rational approval. Like, I know when I'm close to God because I know when I'm growing. I know it. I know I'm growing. I know I'm growing in my knowledge of God. And I feel an emotional promise. It's like I feel God close all the time. And we use that to validate our reality, the reality of our relationship with God. How do you know you're in relationship with God? Well, I, I know I'm growing. My mind tells me I have this cognitive ascent. I know I'm growing. And I have affective assurances. I feel God near me. And that's what we use to validate our relationship with God. But this writer says there are seasons, and it's up to God to choose when these seasons are, where God invites us into something beyond that, to develop in us character, and to know God at an even deeper level, knowing that goes beyond the senses of, of our, our, our cognitive, our rational mind, and our emotions. The oldest book of the Bible that we have, the oldest book that we have in the Bible is the book of Job. And it's a poetic story about such a situation. It's like God was telling his people, this is what it will be like as you follow me. The book of Job um, was basically Job's, his dark night of the senses. He was going through the dark night of the senses in the most intense way anyone could ever imagine. And in the book, he says this, and which is kind of the end goal of the dark night of the senses. He says in Job 13, 15, though, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Though I don't feel him, though it seems like everything has turned against me, though it doesn't seem like there's favor anymore, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Dark night of the senses. Sometimes we feel God and feeling God is great. I mean, we spend a lot of time in here curating a space where we could intimately commune and know God. And for a lot of us, that really does it for us. But for some of us, you've been here for a while, like this is not doing it for me anymore. You might be going through a version of this. See, to some extent, many of us are addicted to the feels that God gives us. We're addicted to the emotional high. We love it. We love that God can play on our senses. Which is why there is so much church transfer because people feel it at one church like I'm not feeling it anymore and they go to another church. This is why people move from small group to small group. This is why we love new relationships in the church and new things. We all, we get addicted to this newness. But God is after something different in us. God is after transformation. This is what God really wants. This is at the center of our text this morning. Transformation. I mean, how do we know the validity of our religious experience? How do we know that we have really experienced, when we get all the feels of God, how do we know we're really feeling the real Jesus? How do we know when we've experienced the real Jesus? We may have had an awareness of God, union with him, but how do we know such an experience corresponds to reality? It's like dreams. Dreams feel real, but they're not real. How do we know that when we have, when God touches our senses, how do we know that it's the real thing? For John, the way he answers this is by saying any experience of God which is valid has an ethical quality to it. If you have experienced God, it will change the way you live. First John 2, 3. We know that we have come to know him, experience him, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And you don't know him. 
You have not really experienced God. If you've experienced God, something changes in your ethics. Something changes in your moral character. The moral fabric of your life changes. See, one of the greatest tragedies of religion in our society in general is that we seldom bridge the gap between practice and profession. Between belief and behavior. We might profess noble platitudes about loving our neighbor or helping the poor or living in a committed community, but our actions are more often fraught with selfish ambition and vain conceit. We might write or post elegantly about what our world needs right now, but our lifestyle of greed and our hostility towards those who are not like us do most of the real talking. We might make fervent petitions for justice, but pass every opportunity to do something for someone in need on our way to buy a $6 cup of coffee. There is a dichotomy between our doing and our saying, our, a chasm that we seldom bridge. But what John says, is, says here is that if you've come to know the real Jesus, that chasm will bridge. The, the, the chasm between your doing, your saying and your doing will bridge if you've met the real Jesus. Your belief in knowing God and your behavior and being like God will start to fuse if, you know, if you've experienced the real Jesus. It's inevitable for the follower of Jesus to become like Jesus. And this is what John means by saying, to know Jesus is to obey Jesus, which is the second part of the triad of Christlikeness, but we will have to save that for next week, for this week, for this week. Allow me to end here with a prayer from St. Ignatius. And I've been meditating on this over the last few weeks. It's been really fitting for me, and I want to share it with you. And I think it has something to do with this thing, with knowing God but surrendering all of the, the things that we would seek God for because we know as we surrender what we seek God for, we will really just, we'll, we'll, find, we'll find God. God will be there. And he says this, we should not fix our desires on health or sickness, wealth or poverty, success or failure, a long life or a short one. For everything has the potential of calling forth in us a deeper response to our life with God. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you that we could know you, that you are knowable. I want to pray for anyone in here who has not wrestled with your teachings, Jesus, the implications of the cross and the resurrection. I pray that they would do that. I pray that today, even if they've been in church for a very long time, even if their family religion is Christianity, but they've not wrestled with it for themselves, that today something would shift. Maybe today they know the claims, they know the thing, but they've not personally said, I am going to follow you, Jesus. You will be my Savior and my Lord, my Lord and my God. I pray for those in here who feel that they don't feel you right now. That they sing the songs. That they wake up early to pray. They've tried the Bible programs and the meditation apps and all these things and it just seems... It's just not there anymore. I pray that you would call them into a deeper place. I pray they would examine themselves. Have they gotten lazy? Have they fallen into sin? Is there any ways they need to repent? But Lord, after they've examined that, I pray that they would know that they, they, 
maybe they've not done anything wrong. But you're calling them into something deeper. To follow you beyond their senses. To trust you when they don't feel you. To believe in you and to believe in the scriptures. Even though mentally it just doesn't feel the same as it did before. It's not as simple anymore. Draw them deeper in their faith and their life with you, God. And I pray for the, I pray for, I just know there's some people that need a touch from you today. Like seriously, like they need to feel you near and you will grant that. This time during worship, you will draw near to us and there will be many of us that say we have experienced the intimacy of God and we thank you, God. And you will fill our hearts with gratitude because you've answered our prayer or you've met with us or you've, you've taught us or something. And so our posture now is moving to response is gratitude. We are thankful, God. And so we t- come to the table of gratitude, the table of communion. And remember that your body was broken and your blood was poured out to redeem us. And our hearts are again filled with gratitude. We thank you, Lord. I just pray for this church that we would grow up into Christ-likeness. I pray that this church would not be one of those churches that talks a big game about being like Jesus, but it does not, is not, act, is not living like Jesus. Keep us from that false dichotomy. Keep us from that silly way of doing church. No one here, we have way better things to do than be in a cold building on a Sunday morning if this is not real. Keep us from that silly thing, God. Please, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.